Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. I am absolutely pleased to have two people here. So instead of Daryl Mathers, I have the amazing <laughs> Julie Cosentino joining me today. The one and only. The one and only. <laughs> and and just, you know, uh, someone that's been involved with uh, our annual report and is, is writing about the Imagine Festival. And, and someone I've kind of watched from afar, and I'm so proud of you. I couldn't have done it without everyone's support. And just amazing. And and. I am honored to have with us as our special guest today, and we're going to announce the show, but Lucas Silvera, who is a songwriter, a singer, an author, an advocate, just, uh, just renaissance. You, you, you oh. have so many things, and, and it's such a great voice for people. Thank you. That it's such a pleasure to have you here today. So I guess we could start right off is we are so thrilled to announce our festival this year, October 27th. We've been doing it for, boy, I think about nine years, and we've had Chantal Kreviasek, we've had Matt Good, we've had Rain Maida, we've had Spirit of the West, we've had so many people come, and Serena Ryder to share their stories. This year, we're announcing we have Tokyo Police Club opening. The we're going for a little younger crowd this year, I think, and, and Lucas has agreed to open, and I think that is absolutely fantastic, and I want to thank you very much for agreeing to do this year's show. Of course, it's an honor, to be honest. Seriously. So what I wanted to do, and, and you can jump in any time, because Daryl, I wouldn't let jump in any time, but you, you can have the floor. Um, I wanna, I'm going to get into your advocacy and all that stuff, but, but I don't want to tie it necessarily to the music at first, because you're a musician as well. And mm-hmm. I don't, you know, so I wanted to start, of where did the music come from and the desire to be an artist and what age and how did that, what was the genesis of that? Oh, dear. Um, well, it goes back to absolutely like to my childhood. My father was a musician and um, my family was extremely musical. Both my older brother and sister are both musicians as well and singers. And my brother's actually a professional musician, but he uh, works out of, uh, in Portugal. So um, my father was a trumpet player, singer, and it was just always something that surrounded me. Um, when people ask me, when did you decide you were going to be a musician? I was just like, I never knew that I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> that's how ingrained it was in right. me since I was a child. We had instruments around the house, so everything that I play is self-taught um, because I just kind of picked stuff up. I remember like playing stuff as early as six years old. My sister had this like double, it was like a 1970s organ, you know, with pedals and all this stuff. And I would just sit there and play songs and stuff. So yeah, it's been my entire life. And, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. When did you start writing your own music? Um, I wrote my first song when I was 11 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. On a Casio keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> the Casio. Yeah. <laughs> she won't remember those when she's too yeah. young. What was it called? Um, oh, the song? Yeah. Oh, to be honest, I don't remember. I remember the melody. and it, uh, So Casio keyboards were like these little digital keyboards that you could like get at Sears which you probably don't remember either because it was just <laughs> this very bizarre like sort of store or whatever you could order stuff in a catalog and I wanted one so badly and it came my, for Christmas my parents ended up getting me one and it had these preset drums and bass lines so you know like when you hear like old 80s movies like um 
I'm trying to remember that movie, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Mm-hmm. Oh, for example, the soundtrack <laughs> sort yeah, of sounds yeah. like it's like a... Then there's a little bass line. So I used sort of something like that, and I had this little bass line going back and forth, back and forth. And when I was 11, yeah, and I wrote that song. I don't remember what it was called, though. But I do remember, I think that I ripped a bass line off of U2. That I remember. If they're listening, please, go easy. I don't know if they are, but... But yeah, no, so you you were I guess you moved from Portugal when you were six. Uh, four years old. Oh, four. Okay. Uh, so I moved to Portugal when I was four years old. Oh, and okay. And then when did you come to Canada? Uh, I was ten. Okay. Yeah. Was it just work related or? Were My parents um, had lived they're from P- Portugal, and in 1977, I believe um, it used to be a fascist sort of like dictatorship, and there was a revolution, and there was a coup, and the guy was thrown out. His name was Salazar, and my dad was like, "I want to move back." Okay. So then we moved back, but then actually we ended up moving back to Canada because my mom had mental health issues that we couldn't deal with there, and mm-hmm. so we came back to Canada just to help right. her out, which is sort of like the root of where my, I think my advocacy comes from. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously you were the lead singer and for the, the clicks who had, you know, um, Dirty King was a great hit for you guys. And But just um, your music has really changed over over the years as well. And is that a direct reflection of your life as well as far as, you know, we're going to get into the mental health advocacy mm-hmm. and the advocacy as a, as a trans man, just all the mm-hmm. stuff that you've done. Did you find... That road, because your music kind of got a little heavier, didn't it? Like a little bit. Well, it went from, I went from being sort of like this solo singer, songwriter, acoustic thing to like super heavy rock. And then from rock to sort of, uh, I started mellowing out again. And I don't know if I could prove this 100%, but after I started transitioning with hormones, something about my emotional landscape changed Mm. so obviously as an artist I'm going to I started creating from a different place and I still can't fully grasp the changes that have come but I do know that it changed sort of how I felt in the world and not and I don't mean that in, in just a you know, oh, here I am, and I've gone through experiences, and I feel different. I mean, literally, hormonally, mm-hmm. um, something changed in my thought patterns and in the way that I sort of like put things together. So I started writing from a very, um, at first, from this very cerebral place, which was very confusing for me because I was always writing from the heart. But that's sort of like where my you know, pathways started happening. And then as time progressed, and I think I started feeling a little bit more in my body and, and all that, I started finding sort of different pathways to the emotions that I used to have, but still differently. It's a very strange thing about testosterone is that um, I couldn't cry for the first, I think, four or five years of, mm. of, of taking testosterone. And it had nothing to do with some societal machismo norm that men don't cry. It literally, like I could not bring I could feel sadness I could feel all these emotions but I just couldn't get the release out Mm -hmm. literally like the physical part out so these are the types of things that I like to talk about as well because people have these sort of preconceived ideas about masculinity or trans masculinity that I think hurts uh, trans men's mental health uh, to a certain capacity you felt that sorry your mind was altering your heart um, yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That couldn't couldn't have put it better. That's why, that's why she's here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have uh, artistic inspirations? Oh, many, many, many. Um, if we're speaking musically, 
oh, I could just go on, but sort of like the roots of music that I came from first sort of in the 70s when I was growing up, bands like Kiss and, you know, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, and then, you know, going like my music tastes vary so much. Back into the 80s, I used to listen to George Michael a lot, and then again into sort of like metal, Motley Crue, stuff like that. And then as I got older, I started listening to a lot to bands like um, Jeff Buckley. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, he passed away, unfortunately, oh. but he was a phenomenal songwriter. I love R&B and Motown music, Michael Jackson, Prince, my goodness. Yeah. I could go on <laughs> and on and on, yeah. Do you prefer artists who kind of uh, um, defy uh, societal norms? Hmm. Kind of like live on the edge? or I don't know if I prefer them, but I would definitely say that I'm most likely attracted to sort of that. Specifically people who don't fit the gender binary look. I was always sort of attracted to people like David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and Prince obviously sort of rode that line very, very clearly. Uh, and I, I think the idea for me is anything that sort of feels kind of queer is kind of awesome. I don't mm-hmm. know that attraction is there. I don't yeah. care what comes out of them mm-hmm. as long as it feels, you know, like it's sort of pushing people's ideas around what they should be. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I would say that. Did you find, I mean, I mean, now, if we go back and growing up and, and, and dealing with this unusual, you didn't, you know, confusion growing up and mm-hmm. things. Did you look to music to try and make sense of things you were going Absolutely. through? Absolutely. Um, one of the first artists that helped make my life make sense was actually Chrissy Hind. Uh, from, from The Pretenders. From yeah. The Pretenders. Yeah. I remember my sister coming to me with this album and pulling, like, this was at, the t- at a time where you used to be able to order uh, albums off of, like, you know, not online for magazines and stuff like that. (laughs) And we lived on a little island in the Azores. That's the only way we could get music. And she goes to the mail and pulls out this album and there's Chrissy Hine on the cover. And she was, you know, uh, cisgender, so physically female. And uh, that was her identity. But her presentation within the music realm was very sort of masculine. She was kind of tough, you know, kind of like Joan Jett. Same, sort of like that rough and tumble. And it was the first time I remember seeing like a female wearing a suit. And I was just like, yeah, that's like, that's like me, you know? So that was the closest. Or seeing somebody like David Bowie, who was male, but still had this sort of like very like, um, androgynous presentation mm-hmm. uh, always drew me in and made me feel somewhat a sense of belonging because I had nobody like me to sort of like look up to. Mm-hmm. So that's been something that has actually, I have found so much uh, value in my career is hearing like young kids say, you know, one of the reasons, you know, we love you is because you make us feel normal. Right. And when I think back to my childhood, if I could think about the fact that I just had one person to see, yes, there's a representation of me, mm-hmm. but that didn't exist. It was the 70s and 80s. Well, so. going to your advocacy, I mean, you've done some amazing things. And I, it's got to be very heartwarming when you hear people that you've inspired. Because like you, you mentioned, you know, things I don't think people would even think about because we don't talk about it when you mm-hmm. talk about not being able to cry. And, and, and I, I think about other kids growing up, like feeling like they're isolated, alone in the world. And, and these types of things, if they only knew or only had, and I look at, do you look back and say, gee, I wish I had a Lucas when I grew up? Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that sort of in Western society we forget is that a sense of belonging is created through pop culture, right. through what we see in media. And 
either like when you come from a marginalized community, whether you're transgender or a person of color or whatever, and all you do is you look on television and all you see is white, you know, faces, white male faces and a certain representation of masculinity and a certain representation of femininity, you feel like, well, this has nothing to do with me. So then what ends up happening is you lose self-worth and you lose value um, emotionally because you feel that you're weird or you're strange and then you start feeling alone and that causes alienation and isolation which right. can lead we all know to mental health issues yeah. Yeah. and I remember I'm reading your Huffington Post article which is fantastic by the way but I mean there were things in there that kind of you know they were emotional and they shocked me like your manager had I think you had said something about your mental health and you better not yeah uh, maybe you can i don't want to take it out of oh context, no it's fine please. yeah i had a manager that um when i first uh was transitioning like he when he signed me and the label signed me they all knew that i was trans and so that wasn't a secret but when and this happens a lot to trans people is that when as soon as they start taking the steps to sort of um you know transition physically um, whether it be through surgeries or hormonally, suddenly people's attitudes start changing. You know, mm -hmm. it becomes, oh, are are you participating in self harm? And I'm like, no, actually, this is me participating in self love. Yeah. Um, and so I had made plans to get top surgery, and yeah, my my manager at the time called me and said, you know, if you're going to do this, I don't want to have any, you know, I don't want to have um, somebody on the road with like mental health problems. And I was like what what are you talking about man like but that's the sort of you know stigma that trans people have to fight all the time is that we are mentally ill yeah. you know and what people don't understand is the thing the things that make us mentally ill is that actually people you know perpetuate these like ideas of mm -hmm. how we don't know who we are and that we need to fix ourselves and that's what causes mental health issues within and our and community it's shocking this day and age you know we talk about people with, you know, physical challenge and how we're quick to accommodate. Like, no one would ever say if, 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 if you needed wheelchair access, boy, you better not go to a venue and I'm going to, you know. Exactly. But somehow, you better not cause me problems. And it's like, well, you're, you know, if someone with a mental health challenge or something, even if they have a mental health challenge, that doesn't define who they are. Absolutely. People and with mental health issues are wonderful, brilliant, powerful people. I hope you got a new manager pretty quick. Oh, <laughs> I self-manage now and I have a booking yeah. agent. I work yeah. very differently now, yeah. And so, I mean, are you finding the demand to, to speak and, and do functions where you're both music, your music's there, but also the advocacy? Is that demand growing quite a bit? That is essentially where I'm going into, and I feel like it's a very natural transition for me. Um, as a musician, I've always been very opinionated, specifically within the politics of the queer community. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, my opinions haven't always been very popular because I tend to expose secretive negative behavior that exists within our marginalized you know lgbt community mm -hmm. um I, I find it pretty divisive at times and i find that there for a community that is consistently talking about equality and tolerance that they have divisive attitudes fr from within that are causing a really intense amount of alienation mm -hmm. and mental health issues and bullying um so i'm sort of like i feel like a little internal gatekeeper so <laughs> now that i'm sort of moving towards you know, speaking more about it from a mental health perspective, I think it's being more accepted mm -hmm. um, as something that is of significance. So, yeah. Was there a point where you got from, um, you know, probably growing up, there was some confusion and not feeling that you had a voice, but was there a point where you said, you know what, I don't care 
people's feelings. This is such an important topic and such important to me and to the future of, of, of other people that I need to speak my mind and I don't care if I offend people. You know, this literally happened to me when I hit 40. Um, it became a, this is about me, not a, or this is like about me, it's not about you. Uh, or if there's hatred or intolerance on their end, I'm like, that's about you, not about me. Right. Um, and it, it, there, I think you reach a certain age or a certain position in life where your self-care becomes the most important thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And if your self-care becomes the most important thing in the world, then you can look at other people compassionately mm -hmm. and see that perhaps their lack of misunderstanding, like of not understanding what people like myself go through or other people who deal mm -hmm. with mental health issues is because perhaps they deal with their own. Mm -hmm. um, I think that people don't understand the scape of mental health issues. People believe that you know, people who suffer from mental health are always mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just like, there's a, such a broad, diverse community within, you know, the realms of mental health that we can, it's the same thing with the queer community. It's just mm -hmm. like, if you're trans, you're not just one type of trans person. If you're gay, you're not just one type of gay person. It's mm -hmm. just, there's so many different types of human beings dealing with so many different things. So I try to find compassion for people who don't, quite get it um and hopefully open up to them enough and speak to them so that they can sort of step in and be like okay well maybe i feel a little bit more comfortable talking about this now in a certain sense you could say you had like metaphorically speaking um the mental illness prior to transitioning which you addressed and healed mm -hmm. yeah. and it's still in the process of healing you Excellent. know i think it's you know so much trauma can happen to a human being when they lack self-love mm -hmm. um, whether it is through self-harm or societal harm or us just you know making all the wrong choices for ourselves because we feel that we don't deserve any better um, including you know going through trying to find uh, yourself or trying to ignore yourself through drugs or whatever that may be you know self-harm is so different for so many people um, but yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, my mental health prior to transitioning was extremely unstable, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that it was in me deciding, like you just said, I don't care mm -hmm. and I can't care. It has to be for me that I have to do this. That's when everything yeah. sort of started coming together for me. My guess, too, is, is, you know, for someone that's gone through, you know, you went through the bullying, all the stuff that you've gone through. You can't help when you see someone, another young person out there, to feel it personally, to, to, to say, you know, to see what they're going through. And there's almost a physical response to seeing somebody else go through that because you're, you're almost putting yourself in their position. And when you're advocating, and I mean, to see someone else, it's kind of physically hurt it based does. on what you've, you've, you've dealt with. Well, what I've learned is that. I have to be very careful in those places. It's again, it comes back to self-care is that I'm very naturally a very vulnerable person. My father, like I said, was a musician and an artist and he never, you know, sort of put up this big shell around himself in, in a shroud of masculinity. So for me, as somebody who was looking to a masculine figure to sort of identify with, he was the perfect person for me as an artist to do that with. And so I feel very comfortable in those vulnerable spaces. But in saying so, just like you said, I have to be careful when I, because I, I become a, a sort of an empath with the energy. So I've been able to retain that openness because I believe that's how you connect to people. But I've also had to very 
as of late, understand that even though I can take that in, I can't take it on. Right. Um, so human beings have to sort of like take the responsibility to care for themselves. And for me, that's where the empowerment uh, mm-hmm. of mental health comes in. I think right. a lot of time we are told as people who struggle with mental uh, health that we are just the way we are and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, You're just going to have to live with that for the rest of your life, which I find is such a disempowering attitude to have. Um, People with mental health issues can feel very powerful and still go through bouts of, you know, whatever they're they're dealing with. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit, I want to give you an avenue to talk a little bit about the Anchor Program and, and, and how that came to be and, and what it is to explain to the viewers. Um, so uh, the Anchor Campaign, uh, I put together, uh, started the idea sort of last year. Um, the idea came to me probably about six months after I had a very near uh, suicidal um, situation happen in my life. And it was in a moment... Um, of having a conversation with a friend where I said, you know, there was this voice inside of me that I heard telling me to help myself, to save myself. I literally heard like this separate entity. Um, some people were like, you should get that checked out. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I'm okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, in that moment I said, what was it about my life and my experiences that I had that? And that's what I called it. I was like, something anchored me to staying here. Mm-hmm. And all I could think about was if we could talk about these things, because what ends up happening is that I find that as soon as you say the word suicide or as soon as you say the word self-harm, people are like, shh, don't talk about that. Or mm-hmm. you should go find somebody in private to talk about that. And there's this people feel so uncomfortable talking about it and that's exactly what creates the isolation and alienation that leads people to having suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and to you know participating in self-harm so the campaign for me was a a way to use social media specifically through um, youth I wanted to to sort of get them going because they're the ones who are mostly on social media to start this um, hashtag of what anchors you post a photo or a little video um, stating what do like when they're struggling with their mental health issues what keeps them grounded what keeps them feeling as though they can move through it and and you know go through another day and in that have people open up that they've had these struggles Mm -hmm. and of course I hit a wall uh, because it's you know mental health is so stigmatized and I realized that through trying to do this campaign I realized just how much stigma there is and I had so many emails people privately contacting me saying this is such a great idea and I dealt with this and I think this is so great but I can't talk about it publicly because you know I have a job where I'm a leader and I think that I'll you know people will doubt my leadership and I was like wow that's amazing that somebody feels that they can't be open because somebody's going to be like well you had this mental health issue or you were suicidal once so I can't trust you mm-hmm. and I'm like since when being sad makes you untrustworthy yeah. right so that's when I was like okay I think I'm going to have to take on this a little bit more personally mm-hmm. so it sort of keeps shifting and I have a focus on the trans community and I'm trying to engage um the aboriginal community yep. and first nations but you know, I've received some feedback from people because I'm very new at this. Um, that, uh, from the perspective of Ab- Aboriginal communities, they sort of like to take a, uh, it hands on in their own community, yeah. and which I fully understand. Yeah. Yeah. But if I can engage the youth in any way, anybody, to be sure. honest, um, I don't want it to be exclusive to anybody because mm-hmm. I believe everyone in the world deals with these kinds of things. Of course, yeah. and I mean, and that's hopefully what the, the October 27th show will be—a uh, great opportunity to. 
um, bring music and your story to the stage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's an event that we reach a, a different audience. I, and I love music and the message together. I think it's a powerful tool. Absolutely. And um, I guess I just, we just, again, thank you for being part of it. We are so looking forward to this event. So am I. I think, you know... Um, you know, our shows in the past have been maybe a little for the older crowd. So, <laughs> so I'm hoping we get some of the some of the Julies of the world to come out and, and, and uh, the younger folks and enjoy. I'm just wondering, for anyone who's not familiar with your music, mm -hmm. if they wanted to uh, familiarize themselves before the show, what would be a go-to song to to look at? Oh, well, um, well the, the band's called The Click, so it's C-L-I-K-S, uh, so you pronounce, you spell that correctly first, or you'll <laughs> find yourself going to a band of three women in underwear, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which people are like, that's which your band? <laughs> I'm like, no, it's no. a different band, um, which we didn't know about when we first created the name, uh, but if you go to my website, um, I have a music page, and there's like a ton of stuff I do a lot of acoustic covers as well um, and my that's sort of my show will be more based on the acoustic performances that I do so if they go on my YouTube channel which is clicks music um, and it's you know YouTube slash clicks music uh, you'll find every kind of different cool. type of song that I do yeah cool. thank you so much you're yeah, welcome thank, thank you very much for joining us thank it's an absolute pleasure to, to meet you you too Tickets are now on sale for the October 27th concert featuring Tokyo Police Club and special guest Lucas Silvera. To purchase tickets, visit regenttheatre.ca or call 905-721-3399, extension 2. We look forward to seeing you at the 2017 Imagine Arts Festival.